Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. John is not here today. Um, he and I are actually preparing for a very big trial that's coming up and he's out rounding up witnesses and so forth that uh, we need to testify. But um, interesting topic to discuss this week and it has to do with the fact that the state of Arizona recently um, introduced a bill which everyone thinks will pass that would get rid of what we call peremptory challenges when selecting a jury. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about this, so I'm going to talk it out like, you know, talk therapy. You can you can be my listener and I'll be the speaker and I'll perhaps I'll know how I feel about it at the end of the show. Who knows? I'm hopeful. But uh, just by way of background, um, traditionally, and this is both in state court and in federal court, in a criminal case, when selecting a jury, um, each side, of course, has the opportunity to strike a jury juror for cause. If, for example, that juror says that they can't be fair and impartial for some reason, and oftentimes it's because the subject matter of the case is too disturbing, or perhaps the juror, you know, a real good example is they just had like you know, surgery the day before or something like that, and they just can't physically get through the process of a trial. Well, those people are removed by the judge when there's an indication that they simply can't be um, an objective, neutral participant in the process. But the problem arises in the context of these peremptory challenges, and, and both sides are entitled to a certain number of strikes depending on how many jurors there are or if there are alternates that are appointed. Um, and they don't have to state a reason for making those strikes. So let's just kind of review what all that means. When jurors are brought in, and I'll just talk about how we do it in Wisconsin because it varies in, in different places. But in Wisconsin, um, in criminal matters, people are entitled to a jur jury pool, uh, an ultimate jury that will sit on the case of 12 jurors. And there are no pre-qualifications, meaning, you know, anybody who is a citizen of the county or the jurisdiction where the case is taking place is eligible to sit on the jury. Um, and as I said before, if there are issues that relate to um, if the person just can't be on the jury, then the judge, you know, normally takes care of that. It can be on the judge's own motion or on either side's motion. But... The way that we do it is we bring in, you know, usually at least twice as many people as we think we need, taking into account the 12 jurors plus enough to account for these free strikes or peremptory strikes. And peremptory means you don't you don't have to state any reason. And so if it's a case that's going to go longer than a day, often, usually, uh, the judge will add alternate jurors and what that means is let's say we're, we're going to have 12 jurors deliberating on the case at the end but something could happen uh, during the course of the trial where somebody gets sick or somebody suddenly for whatever reason becomes unavailable and then um, you know we do that we add extra jurors alternate jurors with the idea that it won't bust the panel then and we don't end up with a mistrial. So it's kind of a um, 
preventative measure to make sure that we'll have <clears throat> the odds of having 12 people available to deliberate on the case, uh, the odds are higher. So you're probably wondering, well, how does that work if, let's say, 14 people sit as jurors through the trial, but only 12 get to deliberate? Well, what happens is at the conclusion of the evidence and after closing arguments are made and the judge is given the jury instructions that the judge is required to give, they then randomly will select, again, if we had 14 jurors, the, the uh, clerk will randomly select two names and then those two jurors are dismissed and the remaining 12 go in and deliberate. So it's it's often a disappointing thing for someone to sit through, let's say, a week-long or two-week-long trial and then be told, oh, never mind, you're not going to be a juror after all. But um, the, the ultimate number of jurors is 12. So then those 12 people go deliberate, they deliver a verdict. But getting back to this selection process, what um, Arizona is doing here is they're talking about getting rid of the strikes that the lawyers would have where they don't have to state a reason. Now, traditionally, there are, I think, very good reasons for having the ability to strike somebody. You know, both sides have this right without necessarily having to give a reason. And part of this has to do with the fact that there is such a thing as what we call a phantom juror. I've talked about this in the show before, so if you've heard that term before, it's probably because I've used it. But a phantom juror is somebody who says all the right things um, to appear that they are not biased, but in fact, they are. And it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's difficult. Uh, it's a difficult part of the process. And it reminds me of there was an episode of the show American Dad. I don't know if you watched that or not, but um, Stan Smith, the main character, wants to very much be on a jury, and he is—he's aware of the fact that uh, you know he's like a law enforcement guy. He's a very stand-up white male type person, and he says all the right things to make sure that he gets put on the jury. Um, when asked those questions and in reality he's just wants to be on the jury so he can be part of convicting the defendant and feel good about entering a conviction on somebody well you know that's done in sort of a comical way but the reality is that the, there is that potential that someone could say oh this is a you know, violent crime or sexually motivated crime and I want to be part of the process of convicting this person, but I'm also aware that if I say I'm inclined to vote guilty just because of the nature of the charges, that I will get kicked off the jury, so I'm going to say the right things. I'm going to say I can be fair and impartial, etc. Well, that that's all you know, technically true, and that is something that you know we kind of have to watch out for when we're picking a jury, but if you get down to the basic legal requirements of somebody who can and should serve on a jury it comes down to their you know are they do they say that they can be fair that's really what it comes down to so the reason why this is a controversial issue is that for years um, as the law has developed it's become apparent that prosecutors and I suppose defendants as well 
through their um, counsel can make strikes that are based on racial reasons. And this brings uh, a, a number of cases that have dealt with this issue into play. And the main one is a case called Batson versus Kentucky. And that was a Supreme Court case that deals with um, a prosecutor that was that had a uh, black defendant on trial and they basically attempted to exclude as many you know african-american jurors on the tr on the jury panel as possible under the theory that they felt they had a better chance of winning the case if they got rid of as many people that were the same race as the defendant hmm well, that, you know, it may or may not be true that that, that uh, enhances one's odds of winning or losing. There's some debate about that. But um, that was deemed an improper motive. And even though uh, a peremptory strike means that the person doesn't have to, the prosecutor doesn't have to state the reasons why they're getting rid of the person, if it appears that it's a, you know, coincidence that, you know, the defendant is black and they're trying to get rid of black jurors they have to state a race neutral reason for why they are making the strike so it kind of adds another layer to the general notion that you can strike for any reason and not have to say why but that if it's possible that there's a racially motivated reason for striking a juror that um the attorney is required to state a race neutral reason now that raises a whole bunch of problems because stating a race-neutral reason is very, very easy. Um, I've heard such things as, that juror didn't seem like he was paying very much attention, or he had a funny look on his face when I asked a question about the crime, or um, I did some background research and this particular juror um, is single and doesn't have any kids. I'd rather have somebody that has kids. You can come up with any reason at all. And so when one of these Batson challenges is raised, it's then the prosecutor's job to provide some kind of reason as to why, oh no, it wasn't that, it was this. It's time for a break and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Legal Defense, I'm Kirk O'Bare. We're talking about Arizona's push to remove peremptory challenges in the jury selection process in that state. And we, it may be the beginning of a trend that spreads throughout the country. And uh, just to recap a little bit, what we're talking about is that um, when there's a jury trial, both sides get a certain number of strikes against jurors that they don't have to state a reason why. So if the philosophy is that the basic questions of can you be fair, can you be impartial, can you be objective, will you listen to the evidence, will you not prejudge the case before hearing the evidence, if those you know obvious questions produce the obvious answers, should we be satisfied that that has taken care of the possibility of um, you know a juror not taking their obligation seriously enough and and so on um two things about that number one our system spends a great deal of time asking sort of all these questions as part of the voir dire or jury selection process 
And we do it a little differently here in Wisconsin than some other states. I know California, for example, they'll bring in jurors individually, one by one by one by one. And then um, they don't ask the entire panel. And so a series of questions are asked. It's very, very time consuming. The reason why they do that, theoretically, is because the answers to some questions could taint the other jurors' uh, answers or opinions about things. And also, a phenomenon that we do have here in Wisconsin that they try to avoid in other states is something called the um, avalanche effect. And that is, you'll always have a certain number of jurors that um, are busy people or they just don't want to be there for whatever reason, or, you know, they, they're like, this is an inconvenience. I don't want to be here. I'd much rather be back at, you know, my job where I have deadlines and things like that. And if one of the jurors that is gets that idea that if they say, gosh, I really can't pay attention. I'm, I'm just, I'm so distracted by my work and I, I have to focus on that. That's just critical right now. Other jurors could get the idea that if they say something along those lines, they can get out of jury duty. So it becomes like an avalanche. And if, if one person raises their hand and says, yeah, I've got a, you know, my taxes are due and I've got to meet with my accountant tomorrow. It's very important. You know, you'll have others that'll say, oh yeah, I've got a reason too. So in California, they avoid that by individually talking to each juror so that it's their answers are somewhat isolated from the others. That is extremely time consuming. But even here in Wisconsin, it's a time consuming part of the process. I've had trials that where the actual testimony part of the case lasts, you know, an hour, but it took us three hours to pick the jury. And if we didn't have all these other questions that relate to seeking out information that could um, provide the basis for you know, the guesswork of a peremptory challenge, I suppose we would save a lot of time. The other thing that is very interesting, uh, since I've picked many, many juries over the course of my career, is that it's a process of exclusion. So each side gets to pick people they don't want, and then you're left with who's ever left over. And it's always a bad feeling when I know I have a juror that I think is intelligent, is going to pay attention, is going to take this job seriously, and, and really contribute toward what I hope to be a just result at the end of the process. That they will do the job, they'll do it well. But in the process of exploring those issues, the prosecutor gets the idea that it's you know too good of a juror for the defense, and they just strike that person. So, you know, someone who could have would have done a very good job ends up getting taken off the panel by the other side just because of all this guesswork involved. Um, well, let me talk about that because there's so much that they put into all these courses that lawyers take, a lot of philosophy that relates to who is a what makes a good juror and what doesn't make a good juror. And all of it is based on pure conjecture, of course. And a lot of it comes from people that don't necessarily do trials, but have have read a lot of books about the uh, the methods of doing so. By the way, there's a whole you know little industry of guidebooks and how to do it type books written by people that don't actually know how to do it, but have a lot to say about it. And 
I encountered that in, when I was in law school and I took a trial practice course and the instructor had never done a trial before and we brought in a judge, a real judge, you know, to kind of preside over our, you know, little mock trial hearings and trials that we had. And the judge was kind of flabbergasted that uh, the curriculum for the case didn't really cover what you actually do and how it's actually done. It's more of all these, you know, philosophical things where they talk about justice and how to achieve it and the role of the parties and etc. But essentially, when you're going through that process of bringing out information, getting the jurors to talk, getting them to share information. Yes, it does help you identify which jurors would be good for your case in your own guesstimation, pure, purely guesswork, of course. But it also tips the other side off as to, you know, who is connecting with the defense, who is just by their mannerisms and the way they're ask, answering the questions, their enthusiasm, perhaps, uh, that they are going to be good for the defense and bad for the prosecution and you lose that juror so in some ways i can see why getting rid of peremptory challenges would help that process because you'll have you'll have jurors that are you know neither side really brought out any sort of you know any of these feelings around the edges and stuff like that you know there's another thing that has always bothered me about jury selection and the people that uh, profess to have a lot of knowledge about what makes a good juror, what makes a bad juror. And it's all these, you know, broad categorical ideas like, okay, uh, nurses make terrible jurors for the defense or somebody, uh, uh, somebody that has five kids would not be a good juror if it's a case that involves an allegation of abuse of a child. You know, these are all things that I think people pull from out of thin air and they're not really based on the fact that that feature of a person, that particular aspect of a person's life, really can't give you much guidance in terms of how they would ultimately come down. And then add to that the fact that our jury process is guided so much by the formal structure, the way that the, the judge will instruct the jury how to do their jobs, the, what they should think about, how they should do it, and so forth, that, you know, the, the strict, the constrictions, as it were, that um, prevent jurors from going completely rogue, um, which, by the way, they have the right to do, but, you know, there's the process tries to stop that from happening, and uh, basically have them do an important job, but kind of a limited job, um, finding facts, what happened, that's it, nothing else. Um, so, I mean, again, the role of a juror, the, the fact that we have citizen jurors, people that come in and have no knowledge of the case, have no interest in the outcome of the case, we trust that you just bring a person in the community with hopefully some common sense, uh, some intelligence, and the ability to observe and draw conclusions from those observations from what happens in the courtroom is really kind of the bedrock of our entire system that um and again you know you know this that the reason we do that is because it was not a feature of trials that um, existed in many other forms of government including the colonial 
government that was in place prior to our United States of America in certain cases. Now, juries in general, in fact, do come from the evolution of the British um, legal system. So it is something that we inherited. It's just that it wasn't being applied uniformly or well enough for um, it to be uh, in previous iterations uh, done fairly. Anyway, but the point is you bring in people that don't know about the case. They sit and listen. They draw their conclusions. It can be based on just uh, their general knowledge of about how life works and so on, and then render a verdict. And we do that because uh, if you trust anybody else, I mean, you can't let the prosecutor deliver the verdict, right? You can't let the defense deliver the verdict. You can't let the judge deliver the verdict. It's got to be this process where you bring in people that are completely disinterested. Uh, they all have blank slates, so to speak, when they come in and listen and decide things. So I can see why the peremptory challenge idea is something that perhaps creates more problems than it solves. Anyway, time for another break. We'll be right back. You know, um, today is September 11th, and this is the 20th um, year. I was going to say anniversary, but that doesn't seem right. 20th year since um, the events of 9-11 in New York City, Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania. Uh, events that kind of changed life in America forever. And, of course, we've seen the long-term effects of that incredibly awful terrorist attack on our country and how we've gone forward trying to deal with it and of course we all know that that resulted in starting a war more or less in Afghanistan it bled over into Iraq we've had um, sort of this effort to extinguish terrorism in the world and we all know it didn't work, and we're kind of sitting here wondering why we did all the things that we did. And, you know, are we better off today than we were 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago? And who knows? But I saw an interesting thing the other day, and it's a little hard to believe, but I saw this in the news. Roughly a third of the population of the United States was not alive. Uh, 20 years ago uh, for 9-11 and that, that seems like a significant proportion of the population and it, I but I guess if that's true you know we've got 33 some odd percent of our country that that didn't either didn't experience it the way that the rest of us did or add to that people that were so young that they didn't really comprehend uh, the magnitude of what was going on and you know, it's interesting for people, for younger people that have just had that event as something that happened in their consciousness. You know, just growing up knowing that something that terrible had happened. Um, it's 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 interesting because I remember on nine eleven having this sense of just utter devastation that the things that you assume about uh, life in general might not be true <laughs> like you know the things that you can count on 
going to work and being able to work there safely and not have some random act of violence mess you up or kill you. And since that time, I mean, I know, uh, of course, random acts of violence existed before 9-11. I know that. But it really kind of changed the psyche of, you know, our national um, consciousness, as it were, being vigilant, being aware and, and, you know, on guard that something like that could happen on any given day. Now, again, this was not the first terrorist act that occurred on American soil by any means. It was not a new concept that something that radical could um, involve so much apparent anger and, you know, implementation of violence. But just the magnitude of it the uh, the surprise attack i mean of course similar to pearl harbor but but you know you have to go back that far to kind of have something on that level that just kind of shakes everyone's sense of stability and we've been in a state of instability ever since i mean it, it obviously affects how you travel nowadays because ever since 9-11, a beefing up of security, the taking off of your shoes, the scanning and all that other stuff, designed not only to detect if people are you know, carrying something beyond the security checkpoint that they're not supposed to have, but also to deter people from trying to do so. And, you know, are the skies safer? Putting COVID aside, of course, but are the skies safer now? Well, I mean, I guess we haven't seen a similar type of hijacking event uh, since then. But what I want to talk about is, um, you know, I've felt for a long time, and I hope that somebody does take this seriously, um, 9-11 should be, there should be an observation day where people do not go to work. And, you know, like a holiday, but not a celebratory holiday, a, a day of mourning. And it's occurred to me ever since the events of 9-11 that it doesn't feel right to, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years after the event to just kind of go about your business as normal and watch whatever documentaries they have on CNN or the History Channel and let it be at, let it be at that. Well, this is a very significant day in the history of our country and really tested the mettle of those who responded to help and uh, all of the other things about life suddenly didn't matter it was the people that needed um, help desperately needed help and we as Americans when called upon to do those things can have extraordinary um, effort and passion in helping our fellow neighbor and all things about politics or whatever else those things just get cast aside, and and if you're called upon to help, you will. But I fear that as time goes on, and if you look at the you know one third of our population that wasn't even alive when it happened, I, I just fear that the significance of this date in our history may eventually come to have less meaning, and. I, I just recall being frozen in time on that particular day. I mean, I remember every minute of that day like it was yesterday. And 
I, I think the entire world was just completely shocked in a state of disbelief and it kind of just suspended everything while the the horror of what was being witnessed on television became this reality and i think that's something that in honor of the people that the innocent victims that died as a result of that um i just think it required something more than hey guess what 20 years ago 9-11 you know <laughs> and by the way if you've never been to the 9-11 museum it is an absolute must see and um you have to go there when it opens because you're going to be there all day till it closes. I mean, it is just transfixing. The you go through every, you know some of the most um, meaningful and and shocking displays are the personal effects of people that died that were found in the rubble, and you see things like cell phones and you know grocery lists, receipts from you know restaurants. Um, wallets, shoes, hats, stuff like that. And it's just, it's just something that really causes you to contemplate um, the sheer magnitude of it. But if you haven't done that, I'd highly recommend it. It's something that um, is, is a very sad, but also um, significant experience that we go through. You know, um, on the legal front, there are several things that we inherited from 9-11 that are not necessarily good. And what I mean by that is that uh, the the role of law enforcement in under the guise of preventing terrorism is something that initially and then with more momentum over the years came to mean that all of us have fewer civil rights than we had before 9-11. And that's just an absolute truth. That sounds rather... Um, like an exaggeration to say, but it isn't. And if you recall, there were a number of laws that were passed that expanded law enforcement authority to do things that were previously deemed invasion of people's rights and their privacy interests and so on. You know, And one of the reasons why police today, now, 20 years later, have such expansive authority to do searches uh, to surveil people, to do wiretaps, a lot of things like that is a direct result of the loosening of those same laws in the name of defeating terrorism. And so, you know, the, doing away with some of the more strict requirements before obtaining a wiretap, doing away with some of the more strict considerations before obtaining a search warrant, and, and all this was a perception on the part of, well, at the time, the president and the legislature fell right in step that um, one of the ways that we can defeat terrorism is to not have our individual rights as citizens uh, as robust as they had been. Um, of course, it wasn't worded that way. It was all in the interest of rooting out and finding those terrorists that are probably amongst us, that kind of thing. So I'll talk a little bit more about how the long-term effects of that philosophy and where we stand today when we come back right after these messages. I've talked about it many times on the show before, but an evolving issue that changes with time and with our culture 
is the concept of an expectation of privacy. It's one of the things that is considered when a court, whether it be a trial court or an appellate court, must look at when a search is being conducted and the, the, the type of protections that are, that are afforded citizens, it has to be viewed in terms of their expectation of privacy. That all kind of comes from the, the general notion under the Fourth Amendment that one has the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures that are not supported by probable cause and there shall be no general warrants, all that language. And what it means is that, you know, the sanctity of one's home and by extension of one's person, the things that you do in your own private quarters with your family or by yourself or nobody's business, um, and that the government shouldn't have a role in monitoring everything you do. We call that, you know, totalitarianism, and it's not something that we want. But after 9-11, we took some significant steps closer to that type of uh, mentality. And I remember feeling the same way that, you know, hey, whatever it takes, we got to go after the people that are behind this, this terrible thing that happened. And let's do it. Let's be creative. Let's find them. How did we get to, how did this all happen? So there was this sort of philosophy that because our laws were not robust enough and because the way that our general structure of society, the, the freedoms that we purport to protect amongst citizens and people that are present in our country even, those are the things that led to the terrorists being able to carry out this attack. That we didn't have martial law, if we had martial law or something like it, it never would have happened is the idea, okay? So this is why we saw a series of laws. The, the main one that, of course, you've heard of is the Patriot Act. And initially that had uh, incredible sweeping changes as to what law enforcement can do as it relates to citizens. But then there were some provisions of that that were later repealed for various reasons. But the general notion is that Going forward, uh, post 9-11, law enforcement officials of, on all levels, not just, you know, federal people or anti-terrorism specialists, this would be all law enforcement people, have the ability to do expanded um, notions of, of uh, obtaining warrants, wiretapping, surveillance, all kinds of things. That was a, a step in toward a loosening of our general expectations of privacy. You know, we live in a different world, a post 9-11 world. You've heard that expression before. Add to that, of course, all the things that have happened since then that relate to the electronification of all of our lives that we, um, you know, you, you have your smartphone and that pretty much contains everything that anyone would ever want to know about you all of your private business, your public business, and so on. And it's changed, no doubt, the way that we uh, value our privacy, perhaps a little less, you know. But all of this, um, it's interesting because in times of uh, conflict, or I guess I could, I could say governmental stressors, the things that uh, naturally would call upon those in leadership to do something, 
in response to something else. Uh, always has run the risk and, and many times throughout history has resulted in bad laws. You know, there's a saying, reactionary laws are bad laws. Um, laws should be there uh, for a, a good general purpose as part of the bedrock foundation of our government and tweaking it because of something that happened um, isn't always a good thing um, because the law is supposed to provide is supposed to apply universally under a variety of circumstances not just one thing one thing happened so we got to change the law so that thing doesn't happen again it's just a bad way to write laws and a bad way to have laws in society we do that a lot in our country we have many laws that are reactionary uh, I think you're all familiar with or if you're not the case down in Waukesha the doctor that had been sentenced for a drunk driving case and didn't go to jail right away and instead uh, became impaired from some he was a doctor so he prescribed himself some impairing drugs and ended up killing a couple people um, driving his car where some say he should have been in jail for serving a sentence on a on a drunk driving offense. So we made this law because of that incident that makes it so people, you know, it directs judges to send people to, directly to jail if they get convicted of drunk driving offenses. A third offense or higher, I mean, in our state, that is a mandatory law. And judges have no discretion. They can't say no. So, you know, a legislator or a group of legislators somewhere saw something bad happen, they make a law to address that situation as if to prevent it in the future. Well, it didn't stop drunk driving at all, and it doesn't have any effect, I think, on people's, um, you know, deterrence, if it were. But going back to this whole concept of what tinkering with um, federal laws, federal standards, and how they bleed down sort of to the local level, if we go through a period of time where we as citizens are willing to sacrifice some of our rights that would otherwise be held intact, for the purpose of defeating terrorism, you know, I think most people would say, okay, that's a, that's a fair bet. The problem is none of those laws actually, well, I can't say none, but the overall impact is that 99.9% .9 of cases means that more people end up getting prosecuted for other stuff. It's got nothing to do with terrorism. This, this anti-terrorism this anti legislation has converted to just strengthening um, the authority of law enforcement further. That's all it really did. Um, make it easier for them to obtain information against somebody, in many cases, without a warrant. Um, so again, you know, a lot of that was reeled in somewhat over the years, but we still have a different culture now um, than we had before. No doubt about it. But just take some time today to reflect on the fact that something like that could happen any day. I'm sure it's not the last time in the history of our nation that we'll see something along those lines. I mean, that's just the reality of life in the modern world. We no longer live in that innocent era where you can assume that something of that magnitude wouldn't happen. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever had that innocent era that sometimes people talk about. I mean... Yes, pre-9-11, there were bad things happening. Bad things happened around the world, in our country, in other countries, and so on. And, you know, it's just a function of, of, of life. And I think that 
we Americans have the idea that we can, if you can do something about it, you might as well try. And that's a good thing. I, I do believe in that. Um, that we can craft a system that makes life better for all of us. But it has to be done carefully. And it has to be done in a way that isn't reactionary. And it has to be done in a way that isn't necessarily always popular. And that's where sometimes the most significant decisions made by government leadership can't be done based on you know, uh, everyone will like me if I do this, or everyone will hate me if I don't do this. Those types of those, those types of decisions. And for what it's worth, I know that um, we're all very disappointed in the manner in which the Taliban took over Afghanistan so quickly. Um, and perhaps there are some lessons to be learned from that. But don't forget that the ultimate point here is that. Uh, president took responsibility for taking action on something that pretty much all prior presidents, not all, but most um, going back for the past 20 years, had had the same desire to accomplish, but either the timing wasn't right or there was a fear of what happened actually happening or, or an anticipation of what happened actually happening. And I think the reality is if you, you know, basically withdraw from a situation it's going to either go back to the way it was before you were there or you know you just have to accept the fact that if a mission can't be conducted in perpetuity forever and ever and ever with questionable um, benefits it's the same thing as Vietnam at a certain point you know we just had to withdraw Naturally, right after that happened, Vietnam became a 100% communist country very quickly after that withdrawal. And, uh, you know, we saw the same thing happen here, but it had to end at some point, And we all know that. So on this day, you know, do some reflection, think about what it means to be alive here in America and remember those that lost their lives for our country. Have a great weekend.